Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. Okay, so it is, it is again a privilege and honor to, to be with you, but I do have the unenviable task of, uh, you know, going last, and you guys are done. <laughs> You're like, I really, if, if there is a day for him to be really short, like, like let it be today. So to, to, just, sh- to just show you how, how hard the room can be, right? You know, um, Dan Renault, like we all go back many, many years. I mean, like we're talking almost 30 years. And so when, when you have that kind of history, you, you have a lot of liberty and you know, like to, to just be cruel, right? Which, which is how men say I love you, okay? So, so Dan, you know, he's looking at the notes and he takes the page and he goes, this is it? Just one page? So I'm like, yeah, bro, I'm limited. So, well, that's our relationship. But no, we, we, um, we, we know, we understand that it's been a lot of information and, and praise the Lord, you, you've got the notes, you've got some audio that, that you can, you know, you can go back and revisit to, to, to stay refreshed with all of this. So um, with the Lord's help, um, we'll look to wrap this up in terms of establishing a generation of mighty men and what a focus this is. What a focus. And uh, my, my heart is to, is to just show you uh, hopefully what that looks like. So why don't we just pause and, and trust the Lord together uh, for, for what we need to get from him. Lord, thank you so much for this week. Uh, thank you for the many, many things that you've shown us in the evenings, in the mornings, uh, Lord, just how you are able to tie it all together uh, for men who have collaborated to some extent, but Lord, not in a way where we could, you know, predict how everything was going to work and flow and all of that, but but you're able to to just, because it is your word, God, to uh, to just reconcile all of it and make it cohesive and make it flow for your glory. And, and Lord, I recognize we're at that point now where mentally we're probably a little fatigued. And uh, it's been a, a great week, but a long week, late nights, early mornings. And, and Lord, we're tempted to just kind of coast and just kind of get through it. But Lord, that's when we're most likely to miss something that you are trying to give us. So Lord, help us to, to, to just lock in for a little bit. And, and get the rest of what you have for us in this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so Brandon put the spotlight very nicely on the importance of leadership development. And I can't speak to that highly enough in terms of local church ministry. Leadership development is absolutely vital. I strongly believe that any local church is only going to be as strong as the leaders that they are developing. We have to have a culture of leadership development where people are growing in Christ, especially if we're talking about the next generation. It demands leadership development, and how nice would it be if everybody who showed up was just ready to go? Spiritually mature, willing, ready, trained. I mean, you can just plug them in and and the ministry just takes off, but that's just not the score in ministry. And so Brandon did a really good job of laying the foundation of what that investment looks like. And so what I'm looking to do is see the return on that investment, which brings us to a look at David's mighty men in terms of some things that they were able to accomplish. So in 2 Samuel chapter 23, in the first seven verses, you, you, you realize that these are the last words of, of, of David, which is a very sobering thing to read. And so that should heighten our attention in terms of whatever's going to follow that, because we're talking about King David, 
his last words. And then the rest of the chapter here in 2 Samuel 23 is devoted to his mighty men. And so when you're reading through the book of 2 Samuel, something that you do have to be mindful of is 1 Chronicles chapters 10 through 29. Because what you get in that section of 1 Chronicles is you get a chronological and detailed reign of King David. So you, you see that in that portion of 1 Chronicles. This is similar to what we see in Luke's gospel, right? Of the four gospels, the gospel of Luke is the most ordered of the four. And so you have that same effect in 1 Chronicles 10 through 29. This is one of the reasons why what you'll find in 1 Chronicles is regarding David's reign is you'll see details and information mentioned or spoken of about his reign that you don't find in the book of 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel, the focus primarily is it's going to show you the highlights, if you would, of David's reign, whereas 1 Chronicles 10 through 29 is going to be chronological and very detailed. Okay, First Chronicles 11 also provides a list of David's mighty men that we're going to see here in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel. That list is longer, and some of the names actually differ than what you see in 2 Samuel 23. Some of the names that are different, as we'll see today, actually refer to the same person just by a different name. We see this effect in the Gospels between Levi and Matthew, right? One and the same person, but different name. So you'll also see that there. But as Brandon referenced, this was a list of growing men. Not to mention, by the time First Chronicles 11 would have been written, those names would have not only grown, but, but there would have been uh, you know, changes with, with people dying and things like that. But the focus this week, as we know, has been the next generation. And with these being the last words of David, the men that we're going to look at today, and we won't look at all of them, but the men that we're going to look at today, they represented what he was leaving behind. As Brandon put it, they were the face of his legacy. And that's really the reality about ministry, isn't it? We're all going to leave something behind, aren't we? We all are. We're all going to leave something behind. From a doctrinal perspective, these men picture for us the believer who finishes well at the judgment seat of Christ and is rewarded for the glory of God. So we see that there. And when the dust clears on this conference, should the Lord tarry, this is what we want to leave behind, correct? People who will finish well at the judgment seat of Christ for the glory of God. This is our heart. At this point, 37 is the number recorded in 2 Samuel 23 of men, but there were 30 chief men, which this number 30, if you study all of this, this number 30 seems to be representative of the group as a whole, if you would. For example, two of the men that you find on the list here in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel were Azahel and Uriah the Hittite. Both those men were dead by then. So I just say that to just establish that 30 is, is kind of representative of the group. You see that there. And then within the 30, there were three men who were captains over the 30. So as you examine the group as a whole, what you find is that there were different tiers, if you would, and degrees of mightiness within the group, just like there will be degrees of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, if you would. So we're all one in Christ, but our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ will be based on what? Ultimately, our mightiness in serving the Lord. And that, that's how it's going to fall out, right? So here we go. We jump into 2 Samuel 23 and verse 8. I just wanted to give you some background and, and give you some footing uh, before we, we just we dove in and, and started, you know, kind of taking this apart a little bit. But verse 8, these be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adino, the Esnite. 
he lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. Let me just tell you, this is, uh, you know, like, this is like a fascinating study. I mean, you, you want to talk about getting charged. I mean, you, you want to talk about getting fired up. These, these were some dudes, man. Right? I mean, these were some, ba- I mean, the, these were some bad mamma jammas. I mean, like, these are the kind of guys that, I don't know, like, it's like studying these guys is like watching a Rocky movie, right? You ever watch a Rocky movie and you're done and you just want to go fight somebody? <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. You, you show up at church, man, you walk off the bread and you just punch him, man. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm fired up, right? This is the study of these guys. Stop studying. Stop, well, actually, <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you, I, I almost, I was like, Brandon, do you, do you want to just teach both sessions? This guy is sending me fictional books. Man, listen to this book. I'm like, Brandon, I don't have time to listen to a whole book before the conference. But he was just stoked. Brandon is, I mean, this guy reads like, like 50 books a month. He, he's, a, he's an avid reader, which is pretty cool. All right, but in First Chronicles 11, verse 11, uh, Adino the Esnite is referred to as Joshabim. And in that account, it says that he lifted up his spear against 300 uh, slain by him at one time. So we see here in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 23 that it was 800. That's not a copious error at all. I mean, the Bible is clear and it's very plain in its language. It's just telling you. At one time, he killed 800, and at one time, he killed 300. It's that simple. Like, you don't have to be a scholar to reconcile that. That's all we're looking at. But again, there was plenty of space between 2 Samuel 23, when it was written, and 1 Chronicles 11. Now, we're not given the exact details regarding how he slew that many men at one time. But we should remember, in Judges chapter 15, that Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. So with God, it was more than doable, with Joshabim killing 1,100 men in total. And in both accounts, it says that Adino, or Joshabim, lifted up his spear. As a matter of fact, the name Adino means skillful with the spear. So while he might have commanded soldiers, the Bible is very clear, he was on the battlefield as well. This was a killing machine. This was a mighty man. This was a giant slayer. Is that not what we want to leave behind? Giant slayers? We want to leave some giant slayers behind, don't we? Now, the name Joshabim, I love it. It means to whom the people turn. And that begins to narrow the focus, and this ushers us to a key point for this week. Faithful leaders leave behind leaders that people can turn to. I think we need to hear that. Faithful leaders leave behind leaders that people can turn to. This is important for the health of every local church. First Chronicles 27.2 tells us that Joshua Beam commanded a course of 24,000 soldiers. That tells me that he was the kind of man that people could turn to, to command that kind of unit. When we make disciples indeed, guess what we do? See, this is the wonderful thing. The uh, making disciples indeed, establishing a true discipleship culture in our local churches is the gift that keeps on giving. Because when we make disciples indeed, what we do, what we set the church up for is when we're gone, there are people that they can turn to. There are mighty men and women of God that we've left behind. While being a prisoner at Rome, Paul was concerned about the state of the church at Philippi. 
Consider what he said in Philippians 2, verses 19 and 20. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. And then when he was abruptly run out of Thessalonica, and he sent Timotheus back, notice what he said in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. And when Paul left Crete, His work was not complete with the churches, and so he left Titus to complete that work. Titus 1 verse 5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. Here's the point. We understand that Timothy and Titus were direct disciples of the Apostle Paul. But guess what they were to the churches? They were men that people could turn to. The church at Thessalonica, the churches in Crete, the church at Philippi, they could turn to those men. Timothy and Titus, they were Joshabims. They were Adenos. Praise the Lord. And so this, is, this brings us to something that I think is, is extremely sober for us to think on. I, 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 think this is, I, I think this is very, very sobering, and it goes like this. What we leave behind will speak as loud as the amount of time we spent in a place. I think that's very sobering. What we leave behind will speak as loud as the amount of time we spent in a place. So we have to make it count. We have to do the work of investing to see God bring out of that mighty men and women of God. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he left some things behind, didn't he? The Word of God, the Spirit of God, the church... And those are speaking as loud as he spoke when he was here, right? What we leave behind is going to say as much about us as the time we spent in a place. But we are given more insight on the mightiest in the group. We're going to jump to verse 13, but we're going to actually go back in terms of what's in between as well. But verse 13 And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time unto the cave of Avgelum. And the troop of the Philistines pitched in the valley of Rephim. And David was then in an hold. And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this, Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. So 2 Samuel chapter 5 records for us uh, David actually being embraced as the king of Israel and Judah. So the nation as a whole up to that point, only Judah had recognized him as king. So he was partially reigning over Israel, but not fully. 
here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I mean, now the whole nation sees it. God has worked his plan, which was his plan from the beginning, that David would be the next king after Saul. And, and so you get that. So now this happens. The Philistines get word, and they go on the attack twice, right? They're, they're going to make some noise. And this was in the Valley of Giants. That's what we're looking at when we're talking about the Valley of Rephaim, just like the giant that David faced in Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And because of the troops of the Philistines, here's David now who is in a hold or confined once again to a cave with his men. And this goes back to the key point that we made yesterday regarding those who have a low regard for spiritual authority will prove to be unfaithful in ministry. These men had a very high regard for spiritual authority. So much so that they demonstrated one of the greatest acts of faithfulness and devotion that you will ever read in the Word of God. These men put their very lives on the line because they esteemed their king that highly. Amazing. Now, verse 15 says that David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. David was physically thirsty, but also in distress. And he longed for what the well of Bethlehem represented, which was home, which was peace, which was comfort which was love, all of that. By this point, he was exasperated on a number of levels. He had been on a run from Saul for years. He had experienced the heartbreak of losing his soul brother, Jonathan. He never got to say goodbye to. Crushed. Only the tribe of Judah accepted him initially as king with the rest of the nation following basically a rebellion led by Abner. That divided the kingdom, which led to a civil war within the kingdom, so more bloodshed. He was finally embraced as king, but then had to fight the Jebusites to take Jerusalem. And then once the Philistines get word that he's king over all of Israel, here's war again. I mean, he's, yeah, he longed for that well at Bethlehem. I'm tired. Anybody understand that? You're just, you're, at times where you're just, you're depleted, gassed. <laughs> it's like, man, I just, I don't want to fight anymore. I, I, I don't want any more war. I don't want any more difficulty. I, I'm spent. I got nothing left. This is where he's at. But he's not alone. He's not alone. Now, here's what's so amazing, and, and it's good for us to see this. When you read this, would you notice that David never asked for anything? He just expressed something. He didn't ask for anything. I mean, th th this, was, this was a moment, this was a raw transparent moment where he's just thinking and speaking out loud from his heart. But see, here's the thing, and this is what we get when we, when, when we make mighty men, is we get their heart and they get ours. So when he spoke from the heart, they heard it. It meant something. Remember, too, they had to be exasperated as well. They had gone through most of that with him. They had gone through a lot with him, including that turbulent transition of power from Saul to David. But here's the key point, and, and this is, when you think about this week, I, I, I just, this is massive. Listen. Mighty men will attempt to move heaven and earth 
to please their king. Although they can't do it, they will try. They will attempt to move heaven and earth to please their king. He is worthy of that. Second Samuel is just saturated, if you would, with images of David being a type of Christ. I mean, it's just all over the pages. And when you consider the next generation, this is exactly what we want to leave behind, right? We want to leave behind a generation of people who will do what? Who will attempt to move heaven and earth to please the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what we want to leave behind. We want to leave behind men and women who are just like these men. Where, Lord, there is nothing that I am unwilling to do. I am Romans 12.1. I am yours. Whatever it takes. And these three men, they give us a beautiful visual of all of this. And so... I want to give you just some observations, some characteristics, and again, this will be very summarized. Right now, you're feeling good, like, you know what? I think we're about to wrap up. I'm looking at... Hang on. Looks can be deceiving, you know. Listen, let me just tell you, thank you for laughing. I mean this. No, no, seriously. I I, I am not typically the funny guy. Like, I, I just... Even when I try, like I, I try, like I, I try to say things that are funny and people are just like, I'm like, that was funny. And I see guys like Brian Clark and, and Lee Ridings and Brandon and Sam, they get up there and people are, ah, <laughs> just, and I'm like, man, I get no love. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I love you, Sam. I love you. Chop it up. There we go. You know what? Hey, man, I'm digging this. Forget about this. Let's just hang out. Come on. What we got? What you got? Man, my trip is complete. This is great. Okay. Mighty men are people of war. They are people of war. The account of this incident in 1 Chronicles 11 reveals the identity of the three being the first three that are mentioned in verses 8 through 12, Adino, Eliezer, and Shammah. Because there, in verse 19, it says, these things did these three mightiest. The first three mentioned in 2 Samuel 23 were the mightiest. Again, there were degrees of mightiness, but they were the mightiest. Okay? And this is punctuated for us in verse 16 of 2 Samuel 23. Look at it again. And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines. That's intense. Three men broke through an encampment of soldiers. That was a fight. That was a fight. Three against a host. Again, these were some bad dudes. And it's good to remember that David was a mighty man. Uh, 2 Samuel 17.10 says, And he also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, so utterly melt, for all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. So it was David who said in 1 Samuel 17, 29, and David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? To David, there was a cause to go to battle against Goliath. There was a cause. And guess what? To these three mighty men, these mightiest men, there was a cause. There was a cause. 
They were just like their leader. That cause was the will of their king. He desires a drink from the well of Bethlehem. That's the cause. That's the cause. That is the cause that we are willing to risk our lives for. That is the cause that we are willing to go to war for. There's a cause. If the Lord tarries, I wonder, 25 years from now, will there be a certainty conference? Will there be wedstrong, mission focus, the discipleship conference? Will they be around 25 years from now? It depends on what we leave behind. It depends on what we're making, which tells us what we're going to leave behind. People who will take a stand on the issue of preservation and the authority of Scripture. People who will refuse to be intimidated and bullied by the world into preaching what is acceptable in the eyes of the world. Ultimately, these are people who will fight the good fight and keep the faith. These are people of war. They're bold and they're bad in the Lord. There's something to be reckoned with. They're men and women of war. Next, mighty men are people of the word. These men took the word of the king very seriously. He didn't have to ask them to go get him something to drink. Him just expressing it, that he wanted it from this well in Bethlehem, and how nice that would be to them was equal to him commanding it because of the reverence and devotion that they had for him and whatever he said or spoke to them. We touched on Adino in verse 8, but when looking at the other two mightiest men, we see pictures of what it looks like for someone to be a mighty man or woman of God. Look at verse 9. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were there gathered together to battle. And the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto the sword. If there's ever a phrase underlined in your Bible, there it is. And his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to spoil. Eleazar smote so many Philistines with his sword that his hand was weary from holding it. A sword is heavy, right? I'm not sure if you've ever held one, but the swords that these men would have been wielding, they were not light. Sometimes what the Word of God says to us is weighty, right? It's heavy. Imagine the church planner who is scraping and clawing and fighting for every soul and resource to keep the work going in a very hard place. And you get to the point where you feel like you're getting some momentum and things are happening and people are coming online and, and you can start to see more light and God is at work and there's hope and there's encouragement. You've got a building that is working for you and it meets your budget in a very expensive place. To only be told, we have a problem 
with your faith-based position on the Word of God. And you have to go. How we handle that depends on what we're cleaving to. This word cleave or clave in verse 10 is the same word, different tense, but it's the same word as cleave in Genesis 2:24, where a man cleaves to his wife. That's the imagery of a man or woman of the word. There is no separation between the two. There's only oneness. Eliezer's is what we have to make. Eliezer's is what we have to leave behind. But to Brandon's point, to make Eliezer's, we have to be Eliezer's. Because everything will only reproduce after its kind. If what we leave behind are people who are just simply content to hold services, because someone who is just content to hold services will be someone content to just hold a Bible. So they won't cleave to a faith-based position of the Word of God. And why would they be content to just hold services? Could it be because that was the environment that they were in? Can I just encourage you, don't ever be afraid. Don't ever be intimidated to call God's people to the biblical standard. It is high, it is holy, and it is right. Let us have churches where if someone is just content to be Laodicean, that this church that they're in will be very uncomfortable for them. Because that's not the culture. That's not what we are holding to. Doesn't mean that we don't love you. We do love you. But we love the king. And it's about that standard. Shama was also a man of the word. Look at verse 11. And after him was Shama, the son of Aji, the Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines, but he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. So this was the same location back in 1 Samuel 17 where the Philistines gathered against Israel and where Goliath was killed. This is the same place now. And in 1 Samuel 17, here's what we're told. We're told that that area that they were in, it belonged to Judah, not the Philistines. So what was Shammah fighting or defending? What was he fighting for? Was it simply something as carnal as lentils? No, it wasn't. Far from it. Listen, he was fighting for and defending the truth. The truth was that territory belonged to God's people. It didn't belong to the Philistines. That was the truth. He was fighting for and defending the truth. This is what people of the word will do. They will fight for, they will defend the truth. They will contend for the faith. They're men and women of the word. These are the kinds of people that we should long to leave behind. Next. Mighty men love their king. Here's what's interesting. The distance between where they were in the cave and the well of Bethlehem was about 15 miles. David knew 
And these three men would have known that the likelihood of them being able to make a 30-mile round trip and not engage the Philistines, the likelihood of that happening was slim to none. No doubt, listen, potentially this was a death mission. This was a death mission. Verse 16 says, they broke through the hosts of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it to David and brought it to him. Two questions. Why would these men endanger their lives to get David some water? Why? I mean, here's another one. Was, 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 was the closest water source 15 miles away? Like, I would, I would feel bad for anybody that lived in that area. Like, you're thirsty? Well, you think you're thirsty. By the time you get to Bethlehem, <laughs> you're going to be ready to drink a lake, man. That was funny, wasn't it? You're going to drink, drink a lake? Yeah. Okay, I know that laugh. That's not a, that's a, that, that's a, that was really corny laugh. That's what that was, because I know him. Are you, are you with me, though? Like, there had to be a closer source. They put their lives on the line, listen, because they loved their king. They loved him. This is what I'm saying. Like, I, I, I think it's great that we, that we hold to a faith-based position, that we hold to sound doctrine. But can I tell you one of the things that I have found to be extremely disturbing and concerning in ministry is I've seen that people can and do hold to those things without a love for Christ. They can rightly divide the word of truth. They got that down. And man, they will go to war regarding doctrinal precision. And I get it. I agree with it. They can go toe-to-toe with the, the best critical text people. Bring it on. They will fight that fight, but they don't love the Lord. They're like the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. They've come to love those things first. They love those things more than him. They don't have that same fervor, that same passion for the king. You know, one of the things that, 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 that the people that you and I are privileged to lead, that we're privileged to disciple, that we're privileged to invest in, they're going to glean a lot of things from us as they should. But can I just, can I just implore you to make sure that something that is just unmistakable in your life, in their eyes, is that you love the Lord. That you love him. That you are a Romans 12, 1 person. He's got you. He's got you. That you don't just love the knowledge of his word, you love all of it. You love it. And not only do you love it, you know what they see? They see you live it. Not just teach it. Not just dissect it, divide it. They, they actually see it in your life. They see it in your steps. Let them get that.
Can I tell you? Um, I'm never... Uh, Brian Clark said something years ago that I've quoted many times. Uh, he said that the new virtue in America is fame. Right? I mean, we, we live in an age where people just have an appetite for fame. Right? They, they, they just want to be known. They, they want to, you know, all of that, right? Um, I, I, outside of this room, our churches, I, I won't be known. And, and I'm probably barely known with, within this, and I'm okay with that. But, but can I tell you, when, it, when I'm done, I, if my children, if they can say, yeah, that old guy, man, he wasn't perfect. But I tell you what, he loved God, he loved the word, and he loved our mother. He loved our mother. Man, I, I'm good. <laughs> Boy, if I can leave that. See, these men, they, they felt like they were greatly indebted to him. When they came to him, you heard it, they were, they were broken. They were destitute. They were nothing. They were, they were like Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. They, I mean, who, who wanted these guys? I mean, you wrote these guys off. And he did for them what they could have not done for themselves. He made them something. Just like Jesus, right? Follow me, and what am I going to do? I'm going to make you something. I'm going to make you fishers of men. This is what David did. He made these men something, and they knew that. This is of interest to me these days, but I've got a freshman in college and a senior in high school. So, um, But I came across this. You'd be amazed the research you do at this age and season of life. But the average amount spent on raising a child that was born in 2015 to the age of 17 is approximately $311,000. How about that? That doesn't include the cost of paying for higher education, which can easily add another eighty dollars to $100,000. And for some people, that sounds like birth control, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. That was funny. Who said was that you, Seth? Oh, there's okay. All right. I got a prize for you, man. <laughs> you know what though? Most people that I know don't walk around keeping a tally on what they spend on their children. Like, okay, yeah, man, you're your lunch today was, you know, $15. Let me log that down. And, and I, 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 think I, I think I spent about five bucks in gas. I don't know, they just went up. So that was maybe about $8 in gas today. Right? I, I do remember very clearly when my children uh, graduated from eating off of Lori's plate. Um, notice I said Lori's plate, not mine. <laughs> You know, uh, that, that was sweet. And there, so we went from that to the Happy Meal, and then, and then they graduated from the Happy Meal. I remember like yesterday, we were out, and, and, you know, Ken devours a Happy Meal, and then he's got that look. <laughs> and you know what moms do, right? Oh, my son's hungry. Oh, baby, here you go. You can, you can. I was like, you can do it all you want. I'm sorry, bro. Maybe you should eat slower or something. I don't know. Like, I, <laughs> I'm not sharing nothing with you. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I, I would just give them five bucks, man. Just go get something. But, yeah, I'm not, I'm not giving you mine. But you know what? In parenting, 
the word or concept of sacrifice, does it exist? I don't think so. Not when it comes to our children, it doesn't exist. As parents, we would attempt to move heaven and earth for our children, wouldn't we? Why? Because we love them that much. We love them. What would, what, what name it? What would I not be willing, I guess, share my food is one thing I would be willing to do, but <laughs> I do provide food, <laughs> just not sharing it, right? I mean, name it. There's nothing you wouldn't do. See, that was the love that these men had for their king. It wasn't a sacrifice. It wasn't even a risk. The Philistines stood between them and what was pleasing to their king, which meant this. The Philistines had a problem that day. I don't care how many of you there are. You got a problem. Because that's the well of Bethlehem. That's you. This is our king. We know what he wants. You can either move or we're going to move you. And had it cost them their lives, they would have counted it an absolute honor to die trying to please their king. The most sober moment for me, I've been at Midtown, praise the Lord, since March of 2010, but I go back with Sam, uh, gosh, 1996, no, 95, 95. Uh, I, I go back uh, with Sam, so there's a, a long history there, just like Brandon, and uh, I would say most of the pastors uh, on our staff, uh, we, we all, we've got almost 30 years with Sam, and so uh, there's a, I mean, Mitch Dobson's back there. Sam did their premarital and their wedding, I think, right? Okay, premarital, okay. Sam did my wedding, and I mean, we can just go on and on and on. We've walked together, right? I mean, it's, so a lot, lot of history, a um, lot of fond memories, but so I, I love being an MBT. Uh, I am immensely content. It's an honor to serve the Lord there. Uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, but the most sober moment for me was the night that we prayed over James and his family, knowing that we were sending them to a part of the world where we may never see them again. Potentially, it was a death mission. I mean, I'm a father. No offense to anybody, but I have, I have the, the most beautiful little girl that you'll ever see. I mean, she is, she's got my heart, man. My son's got my wallet. <laughs> she's got that too. <laughs> But, I mean, this is, this is my baby. She's, she's 17. You know, she still likes to snuggle. Like, we still snuggle. I'm, hey, man, I'm good. <laughs> we can snuggle all you want. The thought of some radical idiot trying to harm her, I can't fathom that. So here's James with his wonderful wife and his wonderful children. Has a, a beautiful little girl born over there. That was the most sober night I've ever had at Midtown Baptist Temple. To this day, James is a mighty man of God and one of my heroes in the faith. Why would James do that? He's a man of war. He's a man of the word. 
and he loves the king. And he said, it's worth it. Those radical individuals stand between me and what is pleasing to my king. They got a problem, not me. But were we not like these men before we came to Christ? We absolutely were. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh and the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts, plural, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires, plural, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were the children of disobedience. We were the children of wrath, our sinful and disobedient state. We were the target of the wrath of God. I had a target on me as a child of disobedience, a child of wrath, and God took us from that and made us accepted in the beloved. And like these men loved David, their king, we must love our king, who is the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, our desire is that the next generation would be willing to sacrifice everything and go ye therefore. The kind of people who are unafraid to walk into the office of their superior and tender their resignation from a six-figure salary and forsake the American dream for the glory of the king. And do it with pride and joy, not trepidation. But we're in a time when even in Bible-believing churches, you've got a number of people who have forgotten more Bible than most of the people in the world will ever learn. But they are unwilling to sacrifice everything for the king. Why? Because they do not love their king like these men love theirs. They've forgotten that they were like these men. They've forgotten how destitute they were. They've forgotten how small they were. They've forgotten how nothing they were. They've forgotten how weak and foolish they were. They've gotten spoiled. Now, as grateful as David was for their sacrifice, he didn't drink that water, did he? Nevertheless, verse 16, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? David's response to what these men did was as mighty as what they did. As they stood before him, they had to be covered in blood, sweat, fatigue from a 30-mile round trip, presenting him with this drink that he coveted. I could only imagine the joy that they anticipated knowing that they had pleased their king and now they're presenting him with this drink that he so longed for and they're going to stand there in their dirty, bloody state with a happy heart saying, man, it's just going to be wonderful to watch him take a sip. Instead, He poured it out unto the Lord. Here we go. 
Mighty men embrace their unworthiness. They do. I, I think we hear this term, mighty men, and I think we go Hollywood, you know, and uh, we, we go big screen, and, and, and so with that, we attach some kind of um, big dealness, if I can make up that expression to it. Like the, these guys are, these are superstars, they're celebrities, they're, they're, you know, they're cut above everybody else and all of that kind of stuff, right? That's not how people like this, that's not how they thought. As much as David appreciated what these men had done for him in his heart, listen, only the true king was worthy of such sacrifice and devotion. David said, wow, I know you guys love me, and wow, what a, but I am not worthy of this. In the next chapter of, verse, of, of 2 Samuel 24, verse 24, which is, boy, you talk about going from 23 to 24. This is a different conversation, let me tell you. But, and the king said unto Arana, nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. See, the reason that David poured this water out and essentially made a drink offering to God was because he was not okay with this nearly costing his men everything and it costing him nothing. He was not okay with that. He was uncomfortable with that. He was unworthy. This is, once again, the difference between being a giver and a taker. A taker in ministry would have taken that water and said, man, thank you guys. Wow, you guys are the real deal and drank it right in front of them. How selfish, how carnal would that have been where these men are standing there covered in blood and sweat and fatigue. If anything, they needed to drink that water. This is why it does start with us in terms of what we are modeling because whatever we're modeling is what we're going to reproduce, as we have been saying. David's stock with these men was already very, very high. But let me tell you, in this moment, it went next level, and what a lesson. You think these men would have forgotten to tell this story. So let me tell you, man, we, we broke through, and... I mean, man, we had a fight on our hands, but we got that water, we got it back, and we're thinking, man, look at what we've done, and, and, and we bring it to him, and he just pours it out. What a lesson. What a lesson. I'm almost done, I promise. Um... You should remember, as a pastor or leader, uh, you're, always, you're, always, you're always being watched. You're always being watched. And let me tell you, one of the things that, for this moment, for me, I, I, I've watched Sam. Uh, stand in front of big crowds. I, I watch Sam every week handle the word. I, uh, I, I watch Sam uh, do a number of big things. But I have image after image after image after image of I see it. 
Not, hey, will you for me? Will you for me? Can you wipe this down for me? I see it often. It lets me know. Listen, men and women who embrace their unworthiness will reproduce men and women who embrace their unworthiness. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.